This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 13? And uh, while you're turning there, I would love to pray for God's wisdom and Word to be all over us today. Heavenly Father, as we are in your Word, we go through your Word, we believe that your word goes through us. Oh, and when your word goes through us, it changes us, it molds us, it moves us, it nudges us. It, it's, it's, it's not an academic exercise. This is the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And I pray that that work today would be alive in us. In Jesus' name, amen. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who's like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. That number is 666. That is Bill Lerwick. Hiring for voiceovers, for 
birthday parties, bar mitzvahs. I swear, if I sounded like Bill with these looks, I'd be unstoppable. <laughs> oh, Bill. <laughs> uh, Bill, I've known for a very long time, radio programmer uh, all over the country. And, uh, and by the way, the voice of the Deeper Podcast on Wednesday. So if you hear that, uh, welcome to the Deeper Podcast. That's Bill. Six, six, six. Has there ever been a biblical idea that has captured the imagination of the world more than that? I mean, think about it. Like, permeating culture, like when Congress passes a law or a bill a few months ago and it was like 666 and everybody's like, oh, that's a bad one, like that. And I'm just thinking, is there not somebody like in Pelosi's office that could say, let's do this one 667. Like, there's no saying we have to do seven. Like, can we not just have a little awareness? Like, they're trying not to be conspiracy people, but you're making it hard. Like, this is not easy. When Kushner buys the building in, D in, in New York and the address is 666, you know this, right? Like, this is true. Like, why couldn't he have done, like, 667 or whatever boulevard? Like, I mean, just, just anything to not do that. But the, you hear that number and it kind of gives you the willies, don't it? Like... Like when, when my wife got, got a debit card and on the back that the number was 666, what am I supposed to do with that? Like what are we going to do? You know what I mean? Calls for wisdom, the Bible says. Because there are those, um, I mean I'm kind of obviously fooling about, but there are those who genuinely, maybe, I don't know, maybe in this room, who've wondered, what if I accidentally take the mark of the beast? Like, what happens to me then? In the same way, like, uh, the unpardonable sin, right? Like, what if I accidentally commit the unpardonable sin? What do I, can I do that? Can I, yeah. and I'm going to answer that question, by the way. Um, but first, I, I want to show you that I think that this calls for wisdom. A lot of knowledge in this book, but it calls for wisdom. And wisdom tells us that there is a man coming, a great world leader, prophesied specifically and multiple times throughout Scripture. In fact, the only one in the Bible prophesied about more than this Antichrist is Jesus himself. Now, by the way, it's a lot more. Like, he's a distant second. But point being, this is a man that's coming. This, this beast that comes out of the sea. And if you want, uh, we'll talk about it in the deeper podcast, but uh, Daniel 7, 8, 9, uh, it, it's there. Uh, this false prophet, the second half of this, the beast that comes out of the sea that speaks and calls down fire. There's all kinds of moving parts in what is happening there. But that, So that's like the explicit message of this chapter. A, a future event, a future thing that's coming to the earth. But there's also something implicit in this as well. And that is not so much about the mark itself as it is about that what I worship, what you worship, marks you. Like we are marked by what we worship. That's the implicit idea that is throughout this chapter. And we're going to sort of unpack it that way. Uh, we're starting with, hey, everybody worships something. I know some of you are sophisticated. You don't. But I'm going to show you in a minute that you do, subconsciously even. The second thing is that that worship that's in all of us, there's a war for that worship, for your worship. And the third thing is that what I said, whatever worship, you know, whatever you're worshiping, it marks you. So, so that's the way we're going to unfold this today. 
The, the one thing we want to start with is just what I said. Hey, everyone worships something. In verse 4, chapter 13, they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? Uh, verse 8, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. And so, so they're worshiping that, and then there are the saints who are worshiping God. Those are the, everybody's worshiping something. And that's the Bible. You might say, but yeah, that, Darren, that's the Bible. But, but, but I know better than that. Like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a secular person. I don't think that. Let, let me read to you something that I read a few months ago, but I wanted to read it again because it spoke so clearly to this. A poet named David Foster Wallace uh, at a graduation ceremony. Wallace was a secular humanist, uh, as best I can tell, atheist, but maybe uh, agnostic, I don't know. For sure not a believer. But this is the advice that he gave to a bunch of college kids. He told them that everybody worships. The choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason maybe for choosing some sort of a God, and he's like, hey, this is a good reason to choose a God. If you're going to be an atheist, at least choose one uh, to worship. He, he goes on to say that the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are, this is the line, default settings. A secular humanist is saying uh, what many have come to say other than that is that we all are worshiping something. He goes on to say this in this speech. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. Is that not the story of Instagram? And when time and age start showing, and it will, when time and age stop showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you in the ground. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Is that not the story of every politician in power, right? Eventually, the absolute power corrupts. It's not enough. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid and a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He wasn't a religious person, but he understood one thing, and that was that what you worship, if it can't bear the weight of your worship, will eat you alive. The beast, worshiping the beast, and it was eating them alive. The current political atmosphere we're in right now. <laughs> now, if you were to, by the way, if I were to define worship as what we just did, congregational singing, okay, that is a form of worship. We sang and we worshiped the Lord. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. Romans 12 tells us what worship is. Romans 12.1 says, Offer your life a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing, acceptable to him. This is your spiritual act of worship. The biblical definition of worship is the exact definition David Foster Wallace gave it, which is offering your life for something else, sacrificing your life for power, sacrificing your life for beauty, for sexuality. Whatever. Sacrifice it for that, it will eat you alive. Sacrifice it for our Father in heaven who can bear the weight of it and it will transform 
conform you. That's what verses 2, 3, and 4 of Romans 12 tells us. And we see that right now because our current political atmosphere, man, they are longing for somebody to come in and save us. I mean, y'all are looking at the same choices on the ballot I'm looking at in just a few weeks. And I want someone to rise up and to save us. I wouldn't use that language necessarily, but I would say something like, well, I don't want to vote for either one of these guys. I don't want to vote for this. I don't want to vote. I just want to vote for somebody for the first time in my life. I want to vote for somebody that I could be excited about, right? And by the way, that's the story of history and where Antichrist, I believe, will sneak into the world is he'll be finally the guy that everybody will say, that guy, that's the guy. I can put my confidence. I'm not going to hold my nose when that one comes along. But... If that's where our hope is, if that's where our life is and our worship is, it's going to crush us. It can't bear the weight of the need that we have. Which brings me to the next thing, which is that there is a war for your worship. If everybody is worshiping something, there is a war for your worship. We have this idea that there's all these myriad of things that we could worship in the world, but there's not. James 3 I think 15 says there's two types of wisdom in the world. Wisdom from angels, God, right? And wisdom from Satan. There's no middle ground. It's one or the other. You're either with me or you're against me. So there is God here and then everything else on this other side is worshiping and putting my weight into things that are not from God so they are from the enemy. And it says here that he opened his mouth, verse 6, to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place. It was given power to wage war, verse 7, against God's holy people. Uh, given authority. That's the war for your worship. The enemy right now, again, this is a literal event that will happen one day, but right now, even in our day, there is a war for your worship. It's happening all over our country right now. If you don't raise your fist, you are not one of us. If you don't do this, you are not one of us. If you don't think this, you are not one of us. The war is for your worship to worship humanity. And the God of the Bible is saying, I'll fight the war for you, but I'm not going to fight it by saying everybody that doesn't get it, you're cut off, you're dead, I'm going to crush you, I'm going to kill you. That's how the enemy fights for your worship. The way that Jesus fought for your worship was not to kill you, but to allow himself to be killed for you. The weapons of his warfare were not carnal, right? But they were mighty. And that is the war that he has fought for you, for your love, for your worship. And look, you guys, right now in our current, literally, ground level stuff right here, there is a war for your worship that wants you to sacrifice your life to give everything you have for political power to let them handle it and for them to save you. There is a war for you to trust uh, experts. And God only knows which expert we get to trust right now. I don't know why we have to trust this one and not that one. Why does the Norway one or why? Do, but we're being told we got to trust an expert. So it's all confusing because it's being thrown at us. Trust the expert, trust the expert. Put your hope in the expert. And the best that our experts have been able to do Right now for a virus that's killing 1%, 2%, whatever we know, it's, like, it's not a lot of percentage, but the best efforts we're putting out there right now are killing 10,000 children a day of starvation in the developing nation. That doesn't begin to cost the, count the cost of what's happening in sub-Saharan Africa with the vaccinations that are not happening for diphtheria, for malaria, for polio. Literally, the World Bank says that we're erasing 10 years of gains in the world in poverty, erasing them. And you know what that happens when that 
that goes backwards, more children die, more adults will die from starvation, from poverty level diseases. That's the best we had to offer. If my hope is in one of those, it's not that I can't say, I want them to do this right. It's not that I'm saying I reject science. It's not that I say I reject government. I am saying that your best effort is still falling short in the kingdom. So if my hope and my worship is in that, it can't bear the weight of it. Us sitting in this room right now, we're told is dangerous and risky and we should not be here. Two weeks ago, some, you know, it's been a month ago now, someone said, hey, you know, uh, we're here, we heard about the slaves, and you know, God moved on his heart and he wrote a check for $25,000 that freed 14, 15 families. Wouldn't have happened if we hadn't gathered. It's not so simple. It's not so binary. Is it risky? Absolutely, it's risky. You know what else is risky? Going to church in Iran is risky. They're going to kill grandma there too. Like, it's true. Like, they are caught in... Pakistan going to it's not that it's without risk I don't want to say that it's not risky I'm just saying there are some things that are worth the risk that we're taking and 181 slaves so far in Pakistan would say this was worth the risk and I could go on of the quarter of a million dollars that has been given by this church body in just the last two and a half months, changing people's lives, most of which was given because of a Sunday gathering because this was something that was important and it was us saying we're, we're looking at the risk, we, we understand why they're saying this, but is it worth the risk to save some lives? And I think it is. I think it is. That was called stunt preaching, by the way. That's when you go into a very tricky situation and say some tricky things and hope to get out alive without... You know, so anyway. Um. <laughs> and for my next trick... Um. <laughs> parkour. <laughs> it's parkour. <laughs> it's parkour preaching. That's culturally relevant. All right, the last thing I want to share with you is this. And that is that there's a war for your worship where you're going to worship mankind or you're going to worship the, the powers that be in this earth or are we going to put our worship on the God of the universe that can bear the weight of our worship? Because whatever we worship, and we will worship something, marks us. It changes us. It says that they're forced to take a mark, verse 16, on their hands or their foreheads. What is that going to be? I don't know. By the way, nobody does. But it's fun to speculate, right? Fun to think, oh, a mark in your right hand and on your forehead, maybe it's the phone. I don't know. Who knows? We'll find out. But deeper than that is what is the mark itself? He says this calls for wisdom. And I want to show you something that is one of the most grace-filled promises, passages in the entire book of Revelation and just this idea of what is this? This is wisdom. Man's number is 666. He was given a mark. Can you think of another time in Scripture where there was a, a man, a beast, if you will, who was given a mark, put a mark on him? Go back to Genesis chapter 3 with me. And you're welcome, by the way. I know I've been making you go to like Zechariah and Isaiah, so I'm giving you a breather on this one. So Genesis, you're going to look real spiritual because you're going to find this one real quick. <laughs> and if you're new in the Bible, it's just the beginning. Just to go to the bigger. Here, here. 
when was the, the first time in Scripture where somebody, where a mark was put on them? Cain. Think with me on this. Chap, let's start in chapter 3 first, though, because I want to show you this. Chapter 3, verse 15. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, I highly recommend that you put this one underlined in your Bible. It's called the Proto-Evangelicum. Okay? That is just a word that people who spend a lot of money going to seminary use to tell you that it's the first time the gospel was mentioned in the Bible. And in this passage, chapter 3, verse 15, is God speaking to the serpent after the uh, the fall, this is the curse, and he says to the serpent, which we now know is Satan because of Revelation uh, chapter 12, that I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, historically, I thought, that, yeah, it's why, you know, hey, ladies, a lot of ladies, if you're ladies, most ladies, you're kind of scared of snakes. Beck, I have a conscious memory of you walking up the front steps of our uh, porch and a black king snake walking across, and you, yeah, you like, basically, yeah, emotionally scarring Liam for the rest of his life. Um, and Mo. Well, so, okay, so let's be honest. That's why I'm saying, I used to think it was just, that was it because it was women and snakes, but never, hanging out with Mo and watching his reaction to snakes, I'm realizing I, I was narrowing it too close. It was a little... <laughs> if, if, you've, if you've never seen Mo react to a snake, I, it's worth every penny. I... I <laughs> Put enmity between you, and I'm literally losing control of the narrative here. Between you and the woman, I will, between you and your offspring and hers. Now listen, that word offspring, King James, if you've got a King James Bible, it actually says seed. That word seed, cover your ears, children, is the word sperm. In, in the Bible, that when you hear the word seed, so when it says a seed of a woman, that's like, oh, wait, what? That doesn't... Proto-evangelicum, the idea that from a woman's seed who doesn't, a virgin birth would come and give birth to a offspring that would crush his head. He would bruise his heel, right? Jesus was bruised, Isaiah 53, bruised for our iniquities. That was in there, but he would crush it. So now go with me on that. Here is Eve, and if you're Eve and you've just been told this is the plan You've just now, you've got a baby. You've, you have procreated. And chapter 4, verse 1, he says, that he made, I love the NIV, the nearly inspired version, and he made love to his wife Eve. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she named him, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. The Schofield Bible, the one that your grandma probably had, some of you might have it on your counter somewhere, dust all over it. In the margins of those old Schofield Bibles, it actually says, give birth to a man, comma, even the Lord. That's the Hebrew idea. And if you think about it, that's her. I'm going to give birth to the one that's going to crush his head, even the Lord. This is high hopes. This is the one. And then, you know, Cain turned two. And every time your child, you know, you get a child, this is the one. And then they become a toddler, and you're like, oh, never mind. That's not the one. <laughs> let's, let's, we'll try again. <laughs> nope, not that one either. <laughs> um, but my children are not here, so I can say these. <laughs> So 
So she gives birth to another one, and his name is Abel. So Cain means I've been given a, the son, even the Lord, and then comes Abel, and Abel is called uh, Abel, which means like vanity, hopelessness, emptiness. It's not the one. This is not going to happen. So you, you can almost see, even in the way she's naming her children, how this is not going well, and it's not the one, and I had all these hopes, and here's the one that's supposed to be the one. He's not. Here's the one that's not, and, and here's the thing, and he turns out to be. One of the fun things for you to do in these weeks, if you want to, is to go through and look at the similarities between Abel and Jesus. Abel is a picture of Jesus. Jesus the shepherd, Abel, a keeper of flocks. Abel's blood would cry out from the ground. Hebrews says that Jesus' blood cries and speaks of better things than Abel's blood. There's a lot in there you could do that. But here's what I want you to see. They both brought an offering to the Lord. Both of them knew the offering that they were supposed to bring. And it says here that Cain brought an offering of of uh, fruits, uh, of the soil. And if you've gardened before, it's not so easy, right? It's a lot of work. And so he's probably very proud. I mean, we've accidentally grown like, I don't know, 20 zucchinis, of which we've eaten exactly none. But uh, we have, she ate a zucchini. Um, but zucchinis, you could like drop one on the way to the car and it'll grow in the driveway. Like it's not like, these are not hard. Cr- We're not good at that. But if I got something that you can grow, like I'm pretty excited about that. Like I want to, I'm very proud of it. I'm not going to eat it, but I'm very proud of it. And then comes Abel who brings a lamb that had been slain. And he, follow me on this. God looks on Cain's sacrifice and is displeased with it and he is proud of Abel. Why is that? They knew what they were to bring. Abel brought what he was supposed to bring, which was a lamb that was slain. It was not his work, not his effort, not his energy. It was his sacrifice for him, his worship. Cain brought his effort, his work, his struggle to try to earn God's love, and it wasn't what he needed because it would never be enough. What on earth does this have to do with anything in Revelation 13? Cain would go on, as you know, to kill his brother Abel. And God would place a mark on Cain. I believe the mark that he put on Cain was the mark of man. This is man doing the best that he knows to do, and it's not enough. The number back in Revelation 13 is what? Six, six, six. Does anybody know what the number of perfection in the Bible represents? What is that number? Seven. Six is almost seven but it's not. It's close, but no cigar. My best attempt at earning my salvation, my best attempt at, even if you've even used the language, and I don't mean to judge anybody when I say this, if you've ever used the phrasing even, I'm just going to pray so much harder, and then I'll get my answer. 
That is the spirit of Cain and not the spirit of Abel. If, if I'm going to press in and make it happen and earn myself, that, that way I'm going to earn it. That is the spirit of Cain and not the spirit of Abel. The spirit of Abel comes with a lamb that had been slain and said it is all about your work and not mine. We just read this in Revelation 13. The lamb that had been slain before the foundations of the earth. That means by the time that Abel had had his lamb, Jesus had already been slain. When you take outside of the time-space continuum, I know that blows your mind. Ask Albert Einstein, he'll explain it. Coming back to Revelation 13, the best that this world had to offer is a guy named Antichrist. We can spend all day long trying to figure out if his name is like six letters, if it's three words and six letters each. All, we can do all that kind of stuff. Have fun. Knock yourself all the way out. It's hilarious. It's a lot of fun. And it misses the point completely. The best that this world will ever have to offer is this man, Antichrist. He's going to be an orator. He's going to be impossibly good-looking. He's going to negotiate peace deals beyond anybody's imagination. And it's still only six, six, six. Because at that level, the best orators, the best communicator, best political leader ever always ends in violence, always ends in war, always ends in cruelty. Because absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. The greatest world leader on the greatest day without Jesus is still six, and it's not seven. It's just not going to be enough. Now, what does that mean for us in our lives? Wherever our hope is, your best day of trying to work and earn your salvation spiritually is still a six. Your best politician that you're putting all your money on thinking this one, and look, let's be honest, of the two that we have in front of us, they're both solid two, right? I mean, like, but, but none of them are going to be seven. None of them. Someday there's going to be a guy rise up, I believe, and we're all going to look at the world. If we're, Hopefully we're not here because I think the church will be gone, but the world will look and say, finally, we got one. That's our guy. The, the nation of Israel will be deceived. That's our guy. Finally, the guy that's going to save us from all of this. And it's not because he's going to show up looking like Dr. Evil. He's going to show up looking like an angel of light. And he will betray them because on his greatest day without Jesus, because it says he turned them over. Jesus, I turned them over. It's Jesus is not in this man. In fact, the weird thing is that it's almost as if Satan himself has possessed this guy. But on his best day, the best the human can do is six and not a seven. And here's the thing. When Jesus, the work that he did for us, do you ever wonder why he bled from seven places on the cross? John Corson teaches us. Seven places, the number of perfection, every thought that you've ever had that you regret, and I can't, he bled from his head to pay for that sin. There are things that you've done with your hands that you regret and you're embarrassed and you're ashamed of and you never, but he bled from his hands and paid for that sin. Your feet have taken you places you ought not to have gone. You shouldn't go back to, but you did. His feet, he bled from his feet. If you have betrayed somebody, stabbed them in the back, and you don't deserve their friendship, he bled from his back. And for every heart that you have broken, every heart that you have crushed, the forgiveness you need, he bled from his 
heart, bleeding from seven places, speaking of the perfect forgiveness of all of our sins. Not one drop of blood was wasted. Your best day is six. But standing in Christ, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Not you standing next to Christ comparing yourself to him. I'm going to say one more thing, and that is this. There's a big movement afoot out there right now that says that Jesus died for you to be a good example for you. You didn't have to die to pay for your sins with the blood. You can bring your fruits. That's the spirit of Cain. All you got to do is be better, love more, work harder, be kind. That's the spirit of Cain. If you're reading Richard Rohr right now, Richard Rohr tells you that Jesus did not die for your sins. He died to be a good example for you. Here's the problem with that. If he's only a good example for me, his example will crush me because I cannot live up to his example. He did not die to be a good example for me. He died to pay for my sins. He was the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth to pay for my sins so that now I am the righteousness of God in Christ but not the way that Roar would teach just by being a better version of me, but by the way that Jesus would teach that because Christ is in me, now I am a better reflection of him. And it has nothing to do with the work that you can do, will do, try to do, and everything with the work that he did. Six, 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 the number of man. It's this close, but it's not enough. Step into your seven today. How about that? Stand up. I'm going to get you out of here. Jesus, thank you for giving us your perfection. Jesus, thank you for... Look, if we just look on this and think, oh, we're only sixes and we're never going to be any more than that, that's so hopeless and it's so sad, but it's not true because in you, the hope of glory... We now stand in perfection as the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because of the work that you did. The worship that we do will mark us. We don't want to be marked, eaten alive by the things that we worship on this earth. Lord, we want to be marked by you. Revelation 7, you put a seal on their forehead. Marked them. Mark us with your blood, with your perfection. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen and amen.